0: Good evening and welcome to the Monroe Church of Christ Midweek Bible Study. I'm Derek Glover. I'm the preacher of the Monroe Church of Christ. If you're joining us from far off, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here, wherever you're joining us from. And if you're local, we're especially glad that you're with us and, uh, and able to continue this study that we are involved in on how we got the Bible. This is the ninth lesson in this series, and to be fair, we've done a bit of the hard work. We've gotten through the harder parts of understanding how our, our Bible as we have it today came to be. And I hope that it's a journey that challenges your faith, but not in a way that breaks down your faith. I hope it's one that challenges you by learning something new and by helping to confirm that we have the words that God intended us to have. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people about this study and done a fair bit of study myself to prepare for it. And it seems to be the case that it, it gets mixed reviews. Uh, when you tell people you're doing this sort of thing, they say, "We'll be careful with that. Uh, and, and fair enough, we, we have to be careful. Um, and We want to make sure we handle it correctly. But a lot of the fear is that we'll uncover something that will threaten a, a, or destroy our faith in some way. And it's my belief that if we handle this correctly, and if we approach it with an open mind and a clear understanding of what Scripture is, Then we won't have that kind of problem this can affirm our faith that God has seen to it that we have the words we need to understand him and most importantly to understand his son so we're going to um we're going to look now as we move past we'll review a little bit because we took a little bit of a we diverted a little bit last week talking about uh Tischendorf and the manuscripts it's just a fun story and i wanted you to, to know that story and there are many stories like it. And in the coming weeks, we'll get into more of those adventure type stories where we see people and players who are helping to bring our story forward to what we have today. Um, we talked about the the what we call autographs, the original writings, how those were aggregated in the Old Testament, how those helped to flesh out and build the books of the Old Testament that we have. We talked about the New Testament writings and how they came to be and the translations that took place. And those autographs were then copied into what we call manuscripts, manuscript after manuscript after manuscript, and eventually manuscripts into translations, which which now taking it to a new language. And we saw the Hebrew move into Greek uh, and the New Testament written in Greek and then the Old Testament rewritten in Greek. And then we saw it go back to something like Aramaic or to, uh, or to, to an earlier Hebrew. And we worked through how all of that how all of that worked. And we've come to a point now uh, where we have the early church, and so many changes take place in the first couple hundred years of the early church. We'll talk about some of that next week. But it's important to see how we got to where we are now in our in our story and in our study. That we've crossed over into the into the, the New Testament period, uh, into the early two, three, four hundreds. AD and we're seeing these translations continue to take place and we're seeing changes continue to be made, not changes uh, in in substantive ways, but we're seeing changes to how those manuscripts are handled and what books are considered scripture. Uh, I want us to though reaffirm what we believe about scripture. The the Bible is is our roadmap to Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God, John 1, chapter 1. Jesus is the Word of God. The Bible points us to Jesus. Uh, but we have to understand that Hebrew and Greek, the original Hebrew and the original Greek, that's the scripture. That was written uh, in the time it was written when those people wrote it. Uh, that's the scripture. Everything else is translation. Everything else is what we have. We don't have any of the originals. What we have are translations of translations of copies of copies of copies. And that can that can lead us to, to feel a little bit uneasy about our about our Bibles. But as with Tischendorf, we saw last week, what he discovered when he finally uncovered all of these ancient manuscripts was that it, it matched. We had the words. We had the words. And over time, there are many periods in history where we, we want to go back and say, well, do we have it right? We've been translating and copying. Have we lost something? Language changes. Um, the, the quality of the manuscripts changes as we discover new ones and lose older ones. Do we have the words? And we have discovered and found all, all throughout those times, yes, we, we do we have a fair bit of confidence, and it's actually an incredible story of how that came to be. Bibles have always been precious. Maybe not so much today, because we have so many of them. I'm standing here in our building, I'm looking at the pew in the back, I see three Bibles sitting there. They're plentiful, and we have them in many different versions. Uh, in fact, you may have a, a phone, and you may. I have a dozen different versions of the Bible just on my phone that I can reference and look at. Um, Bibles or the Scripture have always been precious to us. Believers, in the early days of the church, collected Scripture, wrote about Scripture, wrote in letters to one another quoting parts of Scripture, to the point that if we were to lose uh, all of the New Testament, if we were to lose all of those manuscripts, we could take the letters, just the personal correspondence that we've discovered between early Christians, and we could put the New Testament back together with the exception of maybe 12 verses that we wouldn't have. They copied it down, they considered it precious, and they wrote uh, about it. As time goes on and as translations are made and, and remade and rewritten, changes begin to creep in. Changes to the language, changes to the qualities and the copies uh, that we have. Now we're going to skip over a bit of history here, but we'll come back and catch up more of it. We have to come to the time of Constantine, who is the emperor. Constantine, and this was in the latter days of the Roman Empire, sought to consolidate his power and he knew he couldn't get rid of Christianity, so he uh, he used it. Now, there are a lot of people who say, well, Constantine was converted to Christianity, became a Christian. Well, if that's true, it happened late in life, maybe like a deathbed type thing. But for the most part, he viewed the church as a political tool. So if he could unite this uh, this empire on the basis of a faith or a religion that was growing, then he could consolidate power that way. And so Constantine was very concerned, not with accuracy, but with unity. And sometimes that unity came at the sacrifice of the accuracy, but translations were made and the scripture continued to come down through the ages. Uh, and Constantine would call these councils together like the council of Nicaea or others. And he would say, I need you to address this problem, figure this out, come to an agreement. He didn't care what the agreement was. He just wanted him to come to one and so they did. And as time goes on that develops um, a bureaucracy around the church. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit before but you, you, you have the emperor and then you have the pope. Uh, he, he had the, the church began to be woven into the political structure of the day and so the church itself became very powerful and, and, and developed and again we'll talk next week about some of the, the more detail of this but you go from having congregational community-based faith to a hierarchy with, with elders and pastors and bishops and cardinals and so on and so forth. Uh, that all started with Constantine. This is the birth of the, what we call the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And understand that there have been splits and there have been offshoots and we have orthodox faiths and we have other, other uh, types of faiths that kind of come out of this. Uh, and many, many changes would come henceforth in the in the Protestant Reformation and the American Restoration Movement. But we come to the time of a man named P- uh, Pope Damascus. Uh, Pope Damascus became very concerned with all these different versions of the Bible they had, or all these different translations, and they were in disagreement on a couple of key points, and he was concerned about that. And so he decided to enlist the help, and this is in the late 400s, or uh, early 400s A.D., he decided to enlist the help of the greatest scholar of the day, and his name, uh, well, he had a much longer name, but we call him Jerome. Uh, Hieronymus uh, was was his name, but we call him Jerome. Jerome was one of the doctors of the Catholic Church. I mean, he, he helped form what we know as Catholicism by his translation of the text. And he was commissioned by Pope Damascus to fix the Latin translation or to form a, a comprehensive Latin translation of Scripture. So they had some Latin translations because, again, nobody speaks Hebrew and Greek anymore by this point in time. Um, Latin is the language of the day. It is the language of the world. And so Pope Damascus says we need a Latin translation of Scripture. So he commissions Jerome to take part in this and to lead this. And they call it the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. Vulgate meaning vulgar. Now we think of vulgar as something dirty, but vulgar just simply meant the, the common tongue the language of common people, uh, so that he, he commissioned him to produce a Vulgate. Jerome, uh, and this was considered a sacred task because people take their scripture very seriously. So Jerome has these rather poor translations in Latin that already existed, but then he has the Greek and the Hebrew and he has all these different versions, and he's got to somehow put something together that they can consider to be the words, the scripture. Uh, They can have some confidence in it and have some uniformity in it. So Jerome considered this to be a bit of a scary task, um, and rightly so. He was concerned, we see this in his writings, he was concerned that he would be tempted to put in what he wanted it to say. And who among us wouldn't? I mean, if you think you wouldn't be tempted, have have you ever reached for a different translation of the Bible because you know it makes your point a little bit better than another one? Yeah, we do that. And he was worried he would be tempted to affect the language for his own benefit. Uh, He was also further scared of what the repercussions would be. If he translated something in a way that someone didn't like, he would receive a lot of, uh, of, of blowback from that. Uh, This has been true throughout history. Uh, We can see this as different translations have come into use in the English language. Look at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him, and what do you think the next word is? Well, if you read the King James Version, it says, um, should. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, Um, There have been times when the King James was in uh, far more common usage that people looked at that and they said, ah, should, should not perish, but you still might. You see, that was kind of a proof text to say that, hey, just because you have Jesus doesn't mean you're going to make it. You've got to do some other things right. Well, the NIV came along and the the New International Version changed that word. Instead of should, now it said would, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life and people went crazy. None of us are old enough to remember this, but people went crazy over would instead of should because we misunderstand how language is used. In our language today, when I say I should go do this, it means I might need to, or I might, or if the circumstances permit, I will. Um, that's even the way we use the word, the word will. Uh, I'll do, I will do that. Obviously, we leave room in that language for uh, circumstances to change. The word should in the biblical language, uh, and even as the King James translated it, is an imperative. It's very similar to the word shall um, in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not commit murder. Well, that meant you would not do that. You weren't going to. And when you said shall, you shall inherit eternal life or you shall uh, have eternal life. That meant you would have eternal life. It was an imperative. It meant that eternal life was going to happen. As the language changed, we understood the word should to mean something different, and we got all this proof texting built into it. We read our own understanding back into the language. The NIV came along to try and correct that and make it a more imperative statement in the modern language, and people were upset. we see the same thing happening in gender, with gender pronouns, especially in the NIV. Everywhere you look in older translations and older versions, it refers to a group of people as men or man or mankind. And that's because the history of language is a little bit sexist. And if there's a whole group of women and one man in there, then the pronoun for that collective is, is male. Um, the NIV, when they translated and 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 produced that version, they said, we're going to include, if, if the scripture, if the, tra- if, if the source material says, indicates everyone, a collective, we're going to make that collective pronoun more clear by including both genders. People went crazy, particularly in, in America. We went nuts over that. We pushed back so much that, that the, the new international version, the publishing was stopped. They did not release that version of the NIV in America for like 15 years. Until after the fact, they released to other parts of the world where it was more accepted. But we pushed back against the changing of the gender pronouns in the NIV. Because when things are changed, it makes us uncomfortable. And when language evolves, it makes us uncomfortable. But it does evolve. And it does change. And it was imperative that they could put the scripture into language that they understood and that we understand. And so that was Jerome's task, was to take... All of this mess from all these translations and all this time of copying and everything and get it into one uniform place where the common person could understand uh, and read it. Uh, Jerome was a genius. He was absolutely a scholar. There's been some doubt about that. Um, I think what we can say definitively is he did the best he could with what he had. Uh, The truth of the matter is some of his source material was bad. He was using a lot of Latin translations, um, older Latin translations, to produce a new Latin translation. So some of his source material was bad. He probably wasn't a great reader of Hebrew because he didn't have a great teacher of Hebrew, but uh, he did the best he could. He didn't use a lot of Greek. He did not use a lot of Greek New Testament manuscripts because he didn't have them. He had the Latin and he translated to a modern Latin from the older, and that's how he got most of the New Testament. The Old Testament, he leaned very heavily on Jewish scholars and Jewish leaders, and he listened to those authorities, and they steered him away from the Septuagint. Remember, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that happened um, in the time just prior to to Jesus' time. It happened in uh, in that period. And after Christianity began to take hold, the Septuagint was kind of rejected by the Jewish people because it had too much Jesus in it. Uh, there was too much too much about this Messiah in it. And so they kind of moved against the Septuagint and they drew Jerome away from the Septuagint as well. So he was using different material. Um, and so uh, when he looked back on the Greek and the Hebrew, they steered him away from that, th- that particular translation. Uh, they also convinced him to leave out the Apocrypha. Um, the Pope in, in, in Rome made him put it back in. They wanted it back in there. But you know, people thought differently back then. One of the things Jerome felt very strongly about was there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, therefore there should be 22 books in the Old Testament. Um, I'm sorry, New, New Testament. There's 22 letters in the in the Greek, and so therefore there should be uh, 22 uh, books in the in the New Testament. And, and and why he we would think that's a weird form of logic. That was how they thought back then, and so he left out some books, and and we have you know, 27, they're just counted differently. We have the same books, but he took the Apocrypha out, uh, removed it because he felt it shouldn't be there, he was forced to put it back in, um, and he got a lot of criticism uh, how he handled the Book of Kings, where he, he was trying to make Kings and Chronicles match up more closely, but, They do disagree with each other. There's some contradiction in the two accounts between Kings and Chronicles. He tried to fix some of those things. So he had his faults, but he was doing the best he could with what he had. But be that as it may, Jerome did produce what we call the Latin Vulgate. He produced a Latin translation of the entire Bible. And it was the preeminent uh, translation of its time. It took the place of some of the older and less accurate and reliable translations in that language, and it became the official Bible of the Catholic Church. Uh, It remains the official Bible of the Catholic Church, the Latin Vulgate, Uh, and it was the only Bible that most Europeans had until about the 1500s. Latin was the language of the church, even as Rome uh, began to fall and, and Latin was no longer the language of the world, it was still the language of the church. It was still the translation of the church. And so, um, honestly, the Vulgate's not a terribly good or reliable translation of Scripture um, because it did rely on on not the best source material, but it was the best source material at the time. We have found better, uh, and uh, particularly in, in with Greek translations. Uh, Rome aggressively began to police Scripture from this point on, and aggressively began to police the actions of the church and set a lot of rules and take a lot out of the hands of the people and place it into the hands of the leaders and the bureaucracy of the church. Um, Even though Latin was no longer the language, the Vulgate remained the Bible. The idea that the elements of our faith were too sacred for the common people begins to take hold in this time. Bibles were still very precious. They were not readily available to all people. They were chained to the pulpits in the churches, in the buildings, in the cathedrals. Uh, And even in early Protestant churches it was still the same. Um, It was felt that the scripture was far too sacred for the common person for they might misuse it. We see that also reflected in how communion was handled and still is handled in some parts of Catholicism. Uh, You did not pass trays. You didn't go to a table. Only the members in good standing could approach and be given the bread and given the cup uh, by the priest because the common person and their access to these elements of faith was restricted for, the, for fear that their commonality or their lack of holiness might besmirch or in some, some way scandalize the church. But uh, the the Vulgate remained an important fixture in Scripture, It remained an important part of what was considered Scripture. And it gives us one of the first consolidated forms of the Bible, the 66 books or or more than 66 books when the Apocrypha is put back in. Um, But we have very little coming into English. We're going to get to that here in just a second. Let's understand a little bit about what it means to be English and what we mean by the English language. The English language as we know it is not the English language as it started. Um, About a thousand years ago uh, is when we have the first beginnings of something that could be considered English and it's not anything like our English. Doesn't look like our English. Doesn't sound like, you wouldn't be able to read it. Um, But it begins to evolve. In the 1100s, uh, Keterman, a man named Kediman uh, or, or, or uh, wrote some English form of scripture. It was really just a collection of stories written in English. And that was in about the 1100s, so several hundred years after the work of Jerome and after the Vulgate becomes the accepted translation of the church. Um, Aldham was also a, a, a man who... Uh, uh, translated the Psalms into Anglo-Saxon. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. Uh, The Venerable Bede um, supposedly finished a translation of John in early English. Um, We have a a man named King Alfred. He was the last really pure English king, pure British king. Um, You may not realize that the the kings and queens of England since then have not really been British, uh, not English. They're Anglo-Saxon, um, uh, German, and Dutch. the The royal family is mostly German and Dutch now. I, I'm not. We, we think of them as English because they're the King and Queen of England. But the, you know Prince Philip was German, and he was very clear <laughs> about the fact that he was German. He would let you know he was German. Um, the Queen Elizabeth is has a, a bit of Scotch, uh, but for the most part is. Um, anglo-saxon or saxon and that has a lot to do with history Um, has a lot to do with the that what we what would have been considered true British is really Welsh Wales the people in Wales are the only true Brits Um, and then you have the Celts in the north Um, but the, the the Anglo-Saxons invaded and they pushed the true English, the true Brits uh, to those places. Uh, and then what we have today is England is not really English. And the language evolves with the, the invasion of Normandy. Uh, and, and the French begin to get a hold of the language and mix it up. And in and, and 1066 is when that happens. So we start to see English. Sorry for the history lesson that would bore you. But we start to see the English language then begin to evolve into what we understand today. But in this time, King Alfred, it's claimed, uh, had some translations of scripture made. Um, uh, A man named uh, Alfric also during this time was translating into English, some. But we have no copies of any of that. For the most part, Latin. And anywhere the church could get its reach and get control of 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 other churches, they would enforce these rules that it must be a Latin Bible and it must be done in this way and controlled in this way, heavily policed. But in the the, uh, Celtic regions in the north part of Great Britain, um, you had the Celtic church. They were called the Chaldees. Um, The Chaldees means friends of God. They were the friends of God and they were a faith community. St. Patrick would have been a Chaldee. Uh, they worshiped outdoors. They didn't believe in building large buildings. Um, but Rome in uh, 664 finally kind of gets a hold there and puts them under under the, the Catholic Church. And we won't get into too much history, but it does matter. Uh, eventually, there's a split, and we, we see the development of the Anglican Church splitting off from Roman Catholic and the rest of Europe remains kind of under the under the rule of of the Roman Catholic Church for some time and still still does in many places but all of these things are happening and the and the, the story of our scripture is interwoven with that because it's now in a form where it can be utilized by common people though they did not possess it and though they themselves did not read it but it's in the hands of what are considered to be the holy practitioners of of faith which are the priests and the and the the leaders and the, the pastors and bishops and whatnot of the church but we now do have kind of a lockdown version of scripture and this is how it's progressed to history this is the first time now in in all of this history that we have something that is complete and collected in one place And there's a lot of stories about how we get those 66 books and all the meetings that took place, the arguments over. And we've talked about some of that, but we finally have something that looks like what we have today. But it's still in Latin. And less and less people are speaking Latin. And we, we need something that fits with the languages of the world a lot more, and particularly as it relates to us, the English translations of Scripture, the first English translations of Scripture. How did those come to be? Well, that's next week when we start getting into these fun stories about how these things happen. But as you look at the history to this point, and we consider Jerome, and we consider Pope Damascus, and we consider the way that he approached Scripture, and the way that Scripture begins to become codified and accepted as this locked-in set of books and set of writings, it impacts us still today. And it really begins to help you understand how truly amazing it is what we have. It's truly amazing that we can have these writings passed down, copied, 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 translated, translated, copied, copied, and that we've gotten it into our hands today somehow. And every time we find a new little artifact or a new manuscript or some little piece of a manuscript, When we examine it, and we have the technology now to do that, uh, whereas we didn't uh, earlier, and we start reading, and we see these little pieces of whatever, we read it, and we recognize, oh, this is from Leviticus, and guess what? It matches. Somehow, we have maintained the accuracy and the integrity of the Scripture, all of this time through all of these changes. It is truly amazing that what we still have is still trustworthy and what we have is still accurate in comparison to those old manuscripts. And Jerome had a lot to do with that. For all his imperfections, he did help, a, he, he's one of the, the biggest names in, in why we have the Bible the way we do because he took all of these things that were sort of uh, floating out there laissez-faire and he put them into one thing. And despite how that may have been misused or how it might have been policed or restricted, it still helped us get to where we are today. And the next step along that journey is how these translations began to come into a more modern age and to catch up with the changes in language. And we're gonna talk about that starting next week. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and we'll see you then.